Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200. Episode 32 of Outlander Cast is brought to you by the Tag Your It Etsy shop. From Outlander-inspired necklaces and rings to custom designs for birthdays or any occasion, every piece is created by Dawn, one letter at a time, and is one of a kind. Please take the time to visit Dawn at www.tagyourit.biz, that's B-I-Z. Tell her Mary and Blake sent you and use the coupon code OUTLANDERCAST15 for 15% off your purchase. I actually have a necklace that Dawn made. It has my kids' names, Reese and Felicity, and it's always close by to my heart. I absolutely love it. And heck, guys, you know what? With uh, holiday season coming up, if you can have personalized gifts made, Boom, you're done. Nailed it. Shopping before Halloween. (laughs) So as always, tag your mama, tag your pet, tag your it, whatever it is. People disappear all the time. Most are found, eventually. Disappearances, after all, have explanations. Usually. Cast with Mary and Blake. It's a podcast dedicated to the show Outlander on Stars. Hello, everyone. I am your host, Mary Larson. My name's Blake, and I'm about to geek out. I'm about to full out, straight up, geek out, put me in a room, in a cell with 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 padded walls, and let me just go to town style geek out. Why? Well, I know why. Well, of course you know why. (laughs) (laughs) For those of you who have read the subject line of this episode, of this episode, know why too. But... We're about to have Ron Moore on our show, and he is one of my idols. And dating back all the way to Star Trek: The Next Generation, I mean, this guy, like, one of the episodes that he helped write, literally changed my life, changed my life forever, changed my TV going experience forever. It was a Star Trek episode called "The Best of Both Worlds," in which Captain Picard gets assimilated by the Borg or they're going to kill him and it was like the biggest cliffhanger ever. They they didn't even know what they were going to do for the next season. They didn't even know how they were going to finish the episode. They didn't it was crazy talk. Sounds like it. And I we just got we we were able to speak with them and and, and obviously, you know, geek out about Star Trek, but speak about Outlander as well. And what an absolute treat and i i cannot wait to get this out to the public cannot wait well droughtlander's been taking a darn long time and it's just gonna keep on ticking we still have to make it through a whole winter without outlander oh at least until march or april i hope i hope even though it's not gonna be on i really hope they bring back the outlander yule log (laughs) 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 you know they had that on on tv with with the dogs dogs yeah sitting in front of a fireplace like it's getting cold here in new england and i've been thinking about having a fire and i did i was thinking i was like oh man you know i could use I wish I DVR'd those dogs <laughs> sitting in front of that fire. I, I, I think I, we did DVR. Oh, no, I deleted it. Crap. What the heck? I, I could have used that. I know. I, I could use it in like a week. Well, it's, we have our cats in a fireplace. How's that sound? It doesn't sound as fun. <laughs> One of our cats is named Sassanak. How could it not be fun? Because it's not Scottish of a real Scottish. I don't even know. <laughs> Maybe I'll play Bear McCreary's uh, album. In the meantime, constant so, loop. Yes, just to yes. make yourself feel better. Then I'll feel like it's the Outlander Yule log. So, nonetheless, it's not time for fires yet. No, it not is, yet. 
is time, however, for our epic interview. Let's do it. Joining us today is a screenwriter and television producer who is best known for his work on Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. He ran the reimagined Battlestar Galactica television series as well as Caprica and has written feature films like Star Trek Generations, Star Trek First Contact, and Mission Impossible 2. That's not Star Trek, just in case you guys you know, heard a lot of Star Trek. <laughs> but we all know him as the producer, writer, and showrunner of our favorite show on stars, Outlander. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we are interviewing Mr. Ronald D. Moore. Ron, thank you so much for joining us here on Outlander Cast today. How did you come into writing for television? Okay. Um, I was uh, in Los Angeles. I had flunked out of uh, school at Cornell in my senior year and suddenly found myself without uh, a future or a career. And uh, a roommate of mine had moved out here the year before and was trying to be a writer. And he came back to Cornell for a visit one weekend and we hung out and finally said, so what are you going to do with your life? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, why don't you come back to California with me and be a writer? And I said, okay. Because I had always written uh, stories growing up and I wrote a play in high school and he and I were in the same literary fraternity at Cornell. So he's like to write, but I come from a very small town in California called Chowchilla. And being a writer wasn't a real job there. So it wasn't something I ever really considered to, uh, to make my vocation until I didn't have one. So I cashed out my bank account, got a one-way ticket, flew to California, started sleeping on, uh, on Eric's floor, my friend, and took a series of odd jobs. I was a messenger. I was in hospital. Uh, receptionist, did contracts, did personnel, and tried to write scripts in my spare time, tried to sort of learn the craft, you know, with not, not a lot of discipline, but I, I was trying to, to learn what it was to be a writer. And then one day I started dating this girl. And she had, uh, turned out that uh, she had a connection to Star Trek The Next Generation. And she knew that I was a huge fan of the original series and was becoming a fan of Next Gen, which at that point was in its second season. And she said, oh, you know, they have a set tour over there because there were so many people that wanted to see the Star Trek set that there was an actual regular tour that you could get on if you knew people. So she made a call, got me on the set tour, and it was going to be in about six weeks. So I just decided I was going to take a shot. And I sat down and wrote an episode and brought it with me on the set tour. I convinced the guy that was giving the set tour to read it. And uh, he turned out to be one of Gene Roddenberry's assistants and introduced me to my first agent. The agent submitted the, ship, the, the script uh, formally to the show, and it sat in a slush pile for about seven months. A new executive producer came aboard at the beginning of the third season named Michael Pillar. Michael started going through the slush pile, and he found my script, and he bought it. And they produced it. It was called The Bonding. And he asked me to write a second one, and I wrote a second one. And then not too long after that, I got this call asking if I could come down to be a full-time staff writer, and... I did, and I was there for the next 10 years, and that's pretty much how my career got started. I got a really lucky break at the right time, and, you know, it's been it's been an amazing, amazing adventure ever since. Yeah, that's an awesome story. I want you to know that you are in good company. We actually have the USS Enterprise plaque here in our recording studio. Blake is a huge Star Trek fan, so uh, right. we, we like you on multiple levels, my friend. I'm, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure how much you had to do with it, but I just want to thank you for the best of both worlds. I, I, it's just the entire writing staff that that almost changed my life. That episode. Yeah, I was there when we did that show. I didn't. Michael wrote that episode, but uh, yeah, that that was the sort of the turning point in uh, Next Gen's acceptance, really, within the Trek community. Because what people kind of forget is those first couple of years, we were the bastard stepchild of Star Trek. You know, you'd go to conventions and they were bumper stickers and posters that were proclaiming you know, that they, you were a fan of the real track and <laughs> didn't want anything to do with that bald head guy. And, you know, we were not really accepted as the real deal until both, best of both worlds. And then over that summer, uh, you know, when Trek had ended on the cliffhanger and where they going to kill Picard and all that, suddenly it got some buzz and really got a lot of hype and going into the fourth season was really where everything turned around for the show. And then, we were Star Trek all of a sudden, and it just sort of, you know, cascaded after that. 
It was it was remarkable, remarkable television. It was the first cliffhanger I really remember. Uh, but I, I could talk about uh, TNG all day, and I, but I don't want to waste your time. So um, getting to Outlander eventually, uh, that that's a huge time jump. But how did the conversations about Outlander start for you, and what drew you to this project? Well, it was uh, it was I was um, I was up in Vancouver. It was uh, towards the end of Battlestar Galactica's run, and my wife Terry and my producing partner Merrill and I were having dinner, and we were just starting to look beyond Battlestar and Caprica and saying, you know, what what are other projects that we want to talk about doing someday? You know, what would be the passion projects? And uh, it turned out that Merrill and Terry were both fans of Outlander, and but they had never really talked about it. They didn't know that each other loved the book. So they went off and got excited, you know, in this conversation on their own. And they finally turned to me and said, you would love it too. You should read them. You like historical fiction. You like period pieces. This is right up your alley. That's a strong central uh, female character. Take a look. So then I got the book and read it and I was taken with it. It was a real page turner. And, um, you know, there were twists and turns in the story that I didn't see coming. I liked the central character. Um, there was a lot about the period I didn't know. I didn't know really anything about the Jacobite uh, uprising or the history of Scotland. And so that was, it was just kind of interesting to read uh, about a period that I knew so little about. And by the time I got to the end of the book, I just thought, yeah, this is a show. This is a TV series. I could see how you would make a season out of this. So we tracked down the rights. The rights were held by a man named Jim Kohlberg, who Diana had sold the rights to at that point. He was trying to make a feature out of Outlander and had commissioned a couple of scripts along those lines. And I just said, I don't think it's a movie. Because I thought that, you know, once you, once you tried to boil that novel down to two hours, you would inevitably take out everything that I thought the fans loved. You know, the readers of the book like the period. They like the texture and detail of the world, you know, spending time with Claire as a healer, you know, really getting to know the social mores of the time, sort of getting involved in, you know, this, this other world. And all that would go by the, by the wayside, once you stripped it down to the two-hour version, it would become just a plot, and you'd be racing through everything. And I just, I just told him, I thought, you know, you're just going to lose what makes the book special. And at that point, we just agreed to disagree and said, but you know, let's keep in contact. And so every year, Merrill would call Jim and kind of say, "How's the feature going?" And he would say, yeah, "I was still working on it." And then, like just a few years ago, finally, he said, um, "You know, maybe it is a TV show after all." And we said, "Great." Uh, took it to Sony because that's where my deal was at that point and uh, gave them the books. They, they saw, they got it, got excited about it. And we pitched it and we pitched it, you know, stars is one of the only, we didn't pitch it around to too many places. Uh, stars took the time to read the book and they bought it and they just kind of believed in it and said, yeah, this is, we want to do it. Let's make it as faithful adaptation as we can. And then we were off. Well, thank goodness you did. My gosh, it would have been very, very different. And a lot of people, as you said, would have been very disappointed with just two hours. So for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the term, what exactly is a showrunner? And what are your main day-to-day responsibilities? Um, Yeah, showrunner is a term that's come up in the last maybe 10 years or so. There's always been showrunners in television. They've just never really used that term before. Like Gene Roddenberry was the showrunner of Star Trek, and you know uh, Stephen Bochka was the showrunner of Hill Street Blues, and uh, you know it goes on and on. But essentially, the showrunner is the person in charge on the show. It's usually the writer, it's usually the creator of the show. So my job to illustrate on this show is I'm the one who secured the rights. So then I pitch it to people. So I tell the story. So my job is to constantly tell the story. I'm telling the story of Outlander to the network to the to the studio, I'm telling it to the actors, I'm telling it to the director, I'm telling it in the room with the music and, and so on. I'm the one that takes it sort of all the way from start to finish. So in each episode, I'm, you know, I have to approve the, the break session with the writers, then I approve the outline, sometimes I rewrite it, uh, then through the script process, then I, you know, I, I have tone meetings with the directors and all the production staff all report to me and then it's shot, and then I take it into post. And I, I get the final cut of the episode in the editing room. I supervise the music and the sound and you know, color timing and final delivery. So essentially, I'm like executive. There's several executive producers on the show, like there are many shows. But usually only one of them is the showrunner who basically runs the show. I mean, it's, it's a descriptive term. I, I'm 
kind of the guy who says what the show is and what the show is not over and over again. That's kind of my day-to-day responsibility is it's inevitably a series of questions from all the people in the production or, or from the powers that be. And I'm the one that's arguing for that. No, the show is this or the show is not that. That's kind of my job. You must have to drink a lot of coffee. That's a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of coffee. It's a lot of stuff, but you know, it's a lot of it is, is knowing when not to do stuff. It's, hiring the right people, trusting them to do their jobs. You know, there's a lot of very creative, very talented people on the show. And you try to, you try to let them do what they do. You try to give them guidance and say, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. This is the mission. You know, we're going in that direction. Come along and let's all go that way. And you try to step back and let them do it because they're, you know, they're better at set design or costuming or, or editing than I am. You know, my job is to sort of supervise all of it and try to make it all become one to try to, you know, make it cohere into an episode at the end that is outlander in all its component parts. But, but each individual department head and each individual crew member is you kind of try to entrust them to, to bring their best work and to contribute to what we're doing. So now you've run a lot of hard shows such as Star Trek The Next Generation or Deep Space Nine, Battlestar Galactica, and now Outlander. And what I want to know is, what is it that you enjoy most about creating these large, complicated, and layered worlds? Well, I like creating the worlds. You know, I think I'm really drawn to doing period pieces. Star Trek and Battlestar, in my mind, are period pieces. They're just distant future, you know. Uh, I like creating a world for the audience that doesn't exist. That's not part of their day-to-day reality. So I like sitting in rooms and coming up with how this universe functions and, you know, and what are the rules to it and what does it look like? and What can they do and what can't they do? And I, I just enjoy that process of creation. You know, I think if I was doing a contemporary show that was just, you know, in a normal police station and everyone had normal lives, I think I would get a little bored with it because it doesn't have quite the challenge of trying to figure out, you know, how can we recreate 18th century Versailles today? You know, how can we recreate the Battle of Culloden? How can we recreate things that don't exist anymore? I find that really challenging and interesting and and fun on on any given show. So we actually, speaking of letting people do exactly what they like and what they're good at, we actually had the opportunity to speak to Iris Stephen Bear shortly after the finale of season one. And uh, actually, in the interview, we I referred to him as uh, your consigliere, and he admitted to, the, to, to that fact that he, that term may or may not have been used on multiple occasions by you guys. Um, and it was really great. Can you talk about your relationship with him and your like your long lasting working relationship and your dynamic with both of you in the writers' room? Well, we go way back. I mean, Ira was there, you know, in the very first writing staff you know, at Next Gen when I started. You know, he was kind of senior writer and I was very much the junior writer and I, I learned a tremendous amount from him both on the page and in the room, you know, how to, how to try to get the most out of your people in a writer's room, you know, how to corral the various egos and the various, you know, different sensibilities and try to get everybody to work together and build a sense of camaraderie and you know, fraternity, you know, there in the writer's room and, and how to do the, the producing aspect of it. And, and I learned a lot from him on the page of characters and dialogue and you know, tricks of the trade, so to speak. And then uh, we worked together again on Deep Space Nine for five years, and I was kind of his number two guy. So it was like he was, he was running that, and I was, I was helping him. So now, you know, we hadn't worked together since that point, and now, you know, he's helping me. And so it's a familiar relationship. It's just our positions have shifted and, um, you know, I really depend on Ira. I depend on him to to guide me, to challenge me, to sort of, you know, make me think about it in other ways, to sort of, you know, we, we have very similar story instincts and, and, and sort of, you know, ways of looking at material. So it's great to have someone that I have a real shorthand with because, we, you know, we'll get into something and we'll immediately know exactly where the other one's going. And that, that, that's tremendously helpful when you're working out really, complicated things and that one is a very complicated show so it's just and it's fun you know i really like having him around and he's a great friend of mine and a lot of love and it's just it's just a a big uh, a big plus to to do it with ira wow i'm not gonna lie you're pretty lucky you get to work with one of your best friends and your wife that's a pretty good work situation (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah it's good 
So even though you do get to have your buddies with you, what was the biggest challenge for you in all of season one of Outlander? Well, season one of any show is a huge undertaking, you know, because you're creating something from nothing, literally. You know, you're starting from scratch, and we had to start from scratch. There was no soundstage. We had to build a facility, assemble a team, you know, sell the material, break the material, write it, then start to produce it. And I think what made Outlander particularly challenging was the nature of the show itself. It's not just a period piece. It's it's two period pieces. And on top of that, it's a traveling show in that normally in, in uh, television, you have uh, standing sets. You know, you have the Bridge of the Enterprise, you have a hospital, you have a police station, you have an apartment building, something. You've got these sets that you go back to over and over again. They're kind of the home base of the show. And um, you save a tremendous amount of money. And when you have standing sets, you it saves a lot of time because you're familiar with shooting on them. The cast and crew get familiar with them. It becomes easy. It becomes quick. And you know you can always go right back there to go shoot the next scene in, you know, on the Galactica CIC or wherever you're going. This show doesn't have that. The show is traveling, so it just keeps leaving things behind. You're constantly looking for locations. You're constantly building the sets. You're constantly leaving characters behind. It's always moving forward. And as a result, instead of the normal kind of production rhythm that you get in on, on television, this was like doing, you know, 16 movies. You were doing all, or we shoot in the blocks of two, so it was more like doing eight movies where every prep period you had to sort of start over again. You know, you couldn't really rely on the things you established you know, in the last two blocks or two episodes. You were looking for new locations. You had to strike the sets that you had just built. You had to get new ones. You know, we built, we, we spent a tremendous amount of time and effort building and creating Castle Leak just to trash it and move on because we're never going back there again. And that's a very, that's a very difficult thing to do on a TV production budget and timetable. It's just, it's takes a tremendous amount of money and it takes a tremendous amount of time and mental energy to figure out how you can accomplish this and, and keep it moving forward. So it's just a very, very complex show to produce. So now you even have a, a further complication in the fact that you have to take the show to France. I mean, how do you regard? How are you going to achieve um, France in Scotland? Oh, and I need to put a caveat, Ron. Just so you know, Blake has not read the books, so he doesn't know anything that's happening <laughs> or where they'll be well, going it, next. It's tricky. You know, we had to for the first half of the season we had to really, again, create a new show. There were no sets that we could use from season one. There were no costumes, really, we could use from season one. There were no uh, props or furniture or set deck or carpets or drapes or anything. You know, Paris, in the, you know, in the world of the aristocracy, which is where the story takes place, really has no common elements with the more rustic kind of you know, feeling of, of Scotland, you know, where in, the, in season one, there was a lot of, dark, heavy wood and stonework, you know, and metal bar windows. Now suddenly you're in Paris. You're in, it's the land of gilt and candelabras and fine china and crystal and satin dresses as opposed to wool. So we really had to start over again, just completely from scratch to do Paris. And we are doing it by creating, you know, building some of the sets and our production facilities in Scotland finding some locations in Scotland that actually are somewhat French looking or that we'll be able to uh, redecorate to make look French. We went, we just got back from Prague about a week ago where we went to shoot some exterior work where the streets of Prague, we were able to make look like the streets of 18th century Paris. We also did some shooting in the South of, of England at, at one of the big palaces down there that where some of the interior rooms were particularly French and we could go down there and create uh, scenes that felt like they were in the Palace of Versailles. And then, of course, you've got some uh, digital work to sort of fill in some of the some of the gaps for us. But it's a big, complex mosaic of, of shooting in a lot of different locations, you know, and trying to create a, a world within a world, really. So not only are you in charge of, you know, like making sure the sets go and you finding the right places, it's all going to come under budget, too. And then we have this small yeah. thing of actually making sure that the story is correct. So for for season one, because obviously we're not going to talk about season two story quite yet, but season one, 
which episode was the hottest to break for you in that writer's room? Well, um, I think probably, ironically, the third episode was the trickiest because it was the first, you know, I'd written the first two episodes to get the pod, to get the, the, the show picked up and sold. So I, the pilot was, uh, was really the first two, if you think about it, because the, the story doesn't really get going until you've met all the characters from Castle Leak. So the first two episodes in my mind have always sort of been one, one story. That's essentially our pilot. And then after that, that then cracking the third episode was tricky because that was where we had to start really maneuvering within the, within the story itself. You know, uh, in the book, there's a significant passage of time between Claire's arrival at Castle Leak and, you know, the, and the gathering, which is the fourth episode. And in television, you don't typically just have weeks and weeks fly by. It's just not really the rhythm of, of an hour long drama. So we were going to, we knew we were going to condense the time period. We also wanted to give Claire a drive. We wanted to give her, you know, what's this particular story about? You know, the, the chapters of the book sort of can go in a lot of different directions. You can spend a chapter in the book just talking about herbs and talking about the medicine of the time, or Claire can have, you know, little vignette encounters with different characters, and she can go off in this direction, off in that direction. She can remember things about her life with Frank. You know, there's a lot of, like, components, but they don't necessarily add up to a strong story that has a theme to it that is resonant and that sort of you know, takes your leading character from A to B. So we had to take all those pieces and construct a new narrative out of the, the material that was there on the page, but figure out what's an hour episode drama out of this. And that was challenging. That took a while. That script went underwent a lot of revision, a lot of change, because we were still getting our feet under us in terms of what the show was, you know, how it would work and, you know, uh, how, how we were breaking down uh, the book into discrete individual episodes. You mentioned Frank, and in addition to breaking down the book, you also added a lot of context with Frank, which we loved, by the way. I wanted to know, why is Frank so important to the story, and do you think we'll be seeing more additions to his character like we did in season one? Well, I thought Frank was key to understanding Claire. That's why I thought his part needed to be expanded more. You know, her drive through the whole, say, three quarters of the first season is to get back to Frank. It's to get home, Right. So you had to sort of understand why Claire wanted to get back to this man, because otherwise, at a certain point, you just kind of go, screw it. <laughs> Look at Jamie. <laughs> Great looking guy. Why don't you stay here? King of what, men. You know, what, what's, well, he's the king of men. What, what's your hurry to go back to, to the 1940s? But it drives her strongly through the book. You know, it's, she's through that whole section. She's always trying to get back to Frank. She's always trying to get back to him. She's holding, she's, even as she's falling in love with Jamie, and even as she gets married to Jamie, she's sort of struck by the fact that she's still married to this other man. And when you get to that point in the book where Jamie tells her to wait in the Glen until he gets back from seeing Horrocks, and he leaves, and she just takes off for the stones, that, to me, was the moment I said, I've got to understand Frank more. I've got to, he has to, the audience at home who hasn't read the book has to really identify with Claire's dilemmas. They have, we have to really be sure that they understand why she's going to do that. Or otherwise that choice of her to try to go to the stones would just be inexplicable and, and no one would, would believe it or care. So to me, that meant you had to keep Frank as more of a presence visually. You had to see his face. You had to be reminded of, of this other man that she was uh, in love with. And you had to kind of be torn. You had to kind of feel her dilemma that she's torn in her loyalties and she's torn in her feelings. And the audience had to feel that as well so that they too would kind of go, God, you know, in the pilot, I was really kind of rooting for those two. I kind of like them and wow, you know, I get it. Wow. I hope she gets back to him. And then, Oh, there's this Jamie. Well, that's kind of intriguing too. You know, again, for the, I always have to sort of put on, look at the show from the eyes of someone who had never read the book at all, you know, and that they're just accepting the stories I tell it to them. And I felt that in the visual medium and television medium, you had to know Frank more. You had to see Frank more. You had to sort of flesh out more of, of who he was and what their, what their relationship was. 
Well, I have to say that you, you obviously succeeded because I'm one of those people that had never read the book. And, you know, being a, you know, a, a married man, I always felt like Frank kind of spoke to me a little bit because I always felt like that would totally happen to me. My beautiful wife would go leave me for some strapping young red haired Scotsman. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. You know, and I, I always, I, I always felt like, man, I, I got that guy's back. I, I was always team Frank. So I just wanted to thank you for giving me the opportunity. <laughs> To, to, to learn, uh, learn about him because everybody, everybody kind of like gets on him a little bit. And I'm, I'm always like, why, man? He just seems like a nice guy. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I always liked Frank. I always fell for him. I always liked him in, in the book. And, you know, again, the fact that Claire, the fact that Claire cares for him so much and does love him and works so hard to get back to him, that tells me that he has to be a good guy. Cause mm-hmm. otherwise my heroine shouldn't be so completely you know, driven to get back there. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we, I love Frank and, uh, but conversely, <clears throat> I love Blackjack Randall just simply because I think he's a fascinating, um, antagonist yeah. or maybe I'd even say villain too, but, but I think I'd rather go with antagonist. So yeah. let's, he's a, he's a very interesting character. I, I, and the, the depth that you and Ira had given him, I, I, I didn't expect that. I expected him to, him to just be evil for evil's sake. And he certainly was not. Um, even with that scene when he's sketching Claire's face, you know, that's a, a small thing that just made his character very alive. Um, but towards the end of the show, I'm, I'm just going to talk about it because that's my job. A lot of people, have un- unfairly, in my opinion, said the show went too far in the last two episodes of Wentworth. Um, what would be your rebuttal to them, and why do you think what happened and everything that happened with Blackjack was was necessary to the story, as I believe that it is necessary to the story? Well, I guess my first response is it, I don't think it went as far as the book did. <laughs> yep. you know the book the book is pretty graphic, and the book goes to some you know went even further in some of its descriptions and some of what happened, you know, that's revealed later. I mean, there's a line in season two or book two, I'm sorry, where Jamie is and Claire are having an argument and talking about blackjack. And Jamie says, you're, you know, you're fighting for, you know, the man who he made me uh, suck the blood off of my blood off of his own cock. And I was like, Whoa, <laughs> it's like one of those lines where you're, your eyes kind of fly, fly up in your head. <laughs> we certainly never went that far, but um, it was inherent to what was happening in, in the drama. I mean, it was built into the book and into the storyline. It influences everything that happens with Jamie and Claire um, for the rest of the book series. Really? It's, it's a pivotal moment. It had been building towards that. And if some people thought it went too far, that's, that's okay. You know, everyone has their own line. And I tried very hard as we were, writing it and shooting it. And particularly when it was being edited together, I tried to just use my own judgment. You know what? I tried to take it as far as it could be taken um, and not cross the point where I thought I couldn't watch it anymore. You know, I, I, I don't mind making the audience feel uncomfortable. I don't mind horrifying the audience. I don't mind shocking them or, or you know, or any of that. But I don't want to lose the audience. When the audience can't watch it anymore, then you've lost them. And I tried to take it right up to that line because to do that story and to do it properly meant that it had to be horrific. It had to be brutal. It had to go to dark, dark places that are really hard to watch. And I felt that, you know, we had to honor the story by, by taking it as far as, as we could without tipping it over into the line of being gratuitous or just doing it because we thought we could get away with it. You know, there was never a time where I, we said, hey, let's just go further because, you know, this is stars and we can do anything we want. And, you know, there was never that attitude. It was always, okay, this is, this is the story and this is the relationship between these two men. And let's just look at it directly and let's not shy away from it, but let's not revel in it either. Let's just tell it. Well, you and the rest of the team and Anna Forrester did such a great job, especially with those final two episodes of telling the story. And my question to you is, how do you choose your directors? Are they picked with specific talents in mind? And have you ever thought about doing the true detective route where you just employ one director for an entire season? Uh, we've never considered doing that. No, it's too, it's, it's too complex. It's too big of an undertaking. And it's, it's really hard it's really hard on our directors to just do two at a time. I think if we'd asked, <laughs> asked anybody to do a whole season, we would probably, we'd probably never get anybody to do it. 
Uh, we pick directors. There's a variety of criteria. A lot of it, ha- a lot of it has to do with availability, who's available uh, to do it, who's willing to commit to. You're essentially asking the director to do two months because it's a month of prep and then it's a month of shooting. So it's a big block of time uh, willing to do it. And then you're looking for someone who you know, uh, would have an affinity for this kind of material, someone who had uh, possibly probably done period pieces before, someone who's done character work before, um, sometimes, you know, someone who has shot in Scotland before would be nice. I mean, there's there's a lot of ways of, of sort of vetting directors and trying to figure out who's who's the right person for which piece. You know, uh, Anna Forrester, uh, I wanted for the, for the wedding episode because I thought, I just thought it was a good idea to have a woman direct the wedding episode, frankly. And so I, we searched specifically for a woman to come in and do that. So I would bring a particular kind of um, take and sensibility to it. And I thought it was important. You know, it's a, the wedding night. and This was the big sensual and sexual scenes of the show. And I just wanted, I don't know, my instinct was to, to try to find a woman to come in and do that. And then she did such a great job with it. I also thought that that would be a, a positive thing to direct uh, the last two episodes. Um, and other than that, you know, you're looking for, you know, if it's an episode that has a lot of action in it, you're looking for a director who's done action. If you're, you know, or one that's more interior in character, you're looking for someone who's done that. You're always just kind of looking to match the material as best you can to the, to the director. How much of a say does the director have in the final cut of the episode? Is it something that, you know, they direct and you say, okay, thanks for all the footage and move on? Or do they stick with you for a little while and then, but you still have ultimately the final say in everything that goes on? Uh, they do, they always do the director's cut. You know, we have editors um, um, at the facility in Scotland that work with them there. I'll do the shoot I'll, during the shoot. They communicate with the editor and uh, putting the first assemblies together, and then they deliver to me. You know, a full blown uh, director's cut. And generally speaking, at that point, then they're done with it, and then I take a cut at it, take my producer cut, and then it kind of goes to the studio network, and they give me notes, and then I kind of carry it through. Uh, the rest of the process and each episode is kind of unique and different and there's been episodes that I've recut completely there's been episodes that you know I've barely done anything to it really just all kind of depends on on that particular show the scripts are like that too there are scripts that I've rewritten uh, quite a bit there's scripts that I've I've only lightly polished or haven't touched at all writing and and, uh, editing are very similar skills in storytelling a writer told me a very long time ago, you always do your second draft in the, in the editing room. And that's true because it's, you are telling the story editorially. So it's, it's very important that the rhythm and flow of the final product reflects how we do uh, Outlander. You know, it's, if you, if you, if you cut the show um, to rock and roll music, it's a completely different show. <laughs> you know, if you cut the show with a lot of dissolves, montages, and overlapping images, it's a completely different show. If you cut it really fast, like a Michael Bay movie, where it's really staccato cuts, and you're going, you're, you're popping to people and popping out and moving all around uh, the, the, the scene, you know, just very, very quickly, that's a different show. We have a particular style and rhythm of how we cut the series together, how we use music, what, you know, the, the sort of, uh, the style of sound effects that we use, the, the color correction that we use for the different time periods. It's all sort of part of what you would call the voice of the show. And again, it's my job to kind of maintain that it's the same voice every week, that it doesn't just become a completely different series when you tune in you know, the next episode. One of the things I always felt was like the most creative things the show did visually was in Lallybrock when uh, the, the the encounter with Blackjack and Jenny when things were black and white except for the red in Blackjack's coat or or whatever there were there were some red bits. Is that something that you decided on, or is that something that was just a team effort that was like, oh, this is a really cool idea. We want to highlight this. I think that was something the one of the editors came up with on that particular flashback. We had played around with. Uh, the, in the pilot, I, I made the color decisions about I wanted World War II to look uh, visually very similar to the actual uh, existing color footage of World War II, which is very limited, but it has that sort of uh, slightly uh, too saturated look. The colors tend to bleed a little bit, has a lot of heavy grain, a higher contrast. So I gave that to the World War II section. Then I wanted the 1940s to be very desaturated, and I kind of 
scene to scene, I would kind of pick a color, usually the color of Claire's outfit, like her blue coat or her, her burgundy dress. And then I would bring that color up in the whole scene and, and sit, uh, you know, crush everything else down. And then when we went to the past, when we went to the 18th century, I wanted it to be brighter, more saturation, sharper, have a little bit more brilliance and sort of a clarity to it. So that set the sort of style of the show from that point. Is is that something that, that's done in post or is that done in camera? Like just for people who don't know. That's all done in post these days. Um, that's a reflection mostly of the technology. When we did Battlestar Galactica, which was the early days of digital photography, we were still shooting it on digital tape. Uh, and, at that, and Steve McNutt, who was our uh, DP on Battlestar, who actually is with us this season on, on uh, Outlander, but Steve would sit at a console live on the set and he would, it's called baking in the color. He would, as the show was being shot, he would move buttons and dials on his console that would give Battlestar the look that, that you saw and it was baked into the, into the material. Now with the more, with the more sophisticated cameras and it's no longer digital tape, now they're literally just computer cards. Um, you shoot everything pretty much raw and then um, you apply what's called a LUT. Um, I don't know. I can't remember what LUT stands for. It's light something or other. <laughs> but essentially, it's sort of a, a brief and temporary uh, color correction that all the dailies have that everyone looks at to kind of see, well, this is generally what the show's going to look like in the end. So you have some idea. You're not just looking at the raw footage, which is usually not so great to look at. And then when the show is finally put together and edited, then we sent it to a, there's a color facility here in Los Angeles with a full-time colorist and who literally goes shot by shot through the whole show, color timing out or color grading each particular scene. And, you know, then we'll fine tune everything. And I'll talk to him about, okay, you know, let's bring up the, the red and that a little bit more. Let's, let's, you know, let's bring out more of the shadow. You know, you, you have these very uh, detailed conversations at that point. So with that in mind, in in creating season one, but now season two, you've you've told the story for season one. What are you most excited and let's even say nervous about for in season two? And you know, for those who haven't read the books in a relatively spoiler free fashion. Well, it's it's the big thing is going to France. Obviously, it's it's you know delivering a whole new look for the show. All the things that made make Paris so challenging to deliver are also the things that that hopefully will make it really amazing to watch. It's a completely new color palette. It's a completely new environment. It's urban as opposed to rural. It's the aristocracy as opposed to the poor. I mean, it's just in every possible way, it's a completely different show. And it's, it's exciting to do something in the second year of a show that's so different because typically the second year of a show is expanding on what you did in year one and so on. And this is, you know, one of the great joys of doing this, and one of the one of the biggest headaches is not doing that, is doing something completely different. So it's really exciting to sort of create a whole new Outlander. Yeah, it almost reminds me of like season two of The Wire. I'm not sure if you've ever watched that, or even oh, yeah. what they're doing on the Leftovers now, where they're where they're just changing the story pretty much. Uh, it seems like oh, are they? a bit. Well, they're not changing the story; they're just taking it and moving it to a different setting and a different creative setting. And uh, similar to oh, the wire, similar to the wire, um, and introducing a whole new set of characters that you did not even meet in season one, and it sounds pretty similar to that. Is is that would that be relatively true? Yeah, I mean, I don't uh, the wire. I don't remember season two that well. I remember it had something to do with the docks. I don't think I finished the second season, um, but I remember it was a whole new story. Um, this is a similar challenge in that you it is a whole new story that you're telling. You have the same central characters. It's a whole new group of characters that are going to become involved with um, and a different social strata. And it's just, it's just a different thing. There's also, you know, uh, well, I don't want to give any spoilers away. There's, it, it's a more complex book than the first book. The first book was, um, narratively speaking, it was a fairly straight line. It was very linear, you know, follow Claire into the past. And then it's, it's essentially about her trying to get home and then, falling in love with Jamie and then rescue him at the end. And that's, a, you know, that's essentially what that book is. The second book is just more complex. Um, Diana shifted point of view in the book, you know, narratively, you know, sometimes it's uh, also first person where Claire is 
uh, telling the story. Other times she shifted to another character, had told from his point of view, and then other times it was the objective point. So um, she also, the second book is more complex in terms of, uh, it's more involved with the politics of the era. There's more conspiracies and double dealing and sort of wheels within wheels. It uh, shifts the location several times. It's just a more complicated book overall, and it was a big, bigger challenge to adapt than the first book was. Well, with that in mind, too, you've gone from 16 episodes in season one to, from what I believe, is it's 13 <clears throat> for episode for season two. Is that something that you're like, is that something that was planned? Are you nervous about that? Or because it seems like there's a lot of story there from what you're from what you're saying. It's a lot of story there. I mean, the second book is the shortest of the books, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Um, it, you know, the, 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 the episode order is really about uh, the network and the studio and a lot of business parameters. For stars, uh, up until Outlander, they had never done an order bigger than 10. You know, their typical order was eight. Wow. And then some, they had a few shows they did 10 with. So for them to do 16 was a huge investment and a, a big show of faith. And then as we, we knew that we probably weren't going to continue to do 16s because that doesn't really fit their broadcast schedule and the format of what they do. Uh, but they still are giving us 13, which is still three more than they give their, their typical shows. So that's great. And for us, you know, it's, it's a familiar number for whatever reason. 13 is sort of a standard order in cable television. So it's kind of a familiar number to get your arms around as, as, as writers. You sort of get how to arc out a story over 13 episodes and what the rhythm of that is. So it's not too big of a challenge in terms of, of that, of the storytelling. I want to let you know that you did a great job tiptoeing around any spoilers. <laughs> it is so hard for me. Our whole podcast is spoiler-free, and I sit here often just staring at a wall so that my face doesn't give anything away to Blake because I have read the book. So you did a really good yeah, job yeah. right there. Um, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so one of the things that stands out the most to me about Outlander is the fandom. I mean, we have a, mm-hmm. an amazingly strong fandom, and mm-hmm. I wanted to just kind of get your perspective on it. Maybe if you wanted to compare and contrast from, say, the Star Trek fans, or just what it's been like on the other side for you with this Outlander fandom. Well, I would say um, I find the Outlander fans very familiar. I mean, uh, my experience you know, with Star Trek fans and then Battlestar fans and, and now Outlander fans are they're all pretty much the same, really, because they're all, they're all coming from the same place. They're all coming from this place of love. They all love this show. They all love it, love the characters. They want to know more about it. They want to understand behind the scenes, why you made the decisions you did, why didn't you do these other things, how did you construct that, where did you shoot that, tell me the funny stories from the set. They want to you know, talk to the actors. They want to see behind-the-scenes photos. They want to organize themselves into communities. They, you know, they talk to each other. They write their own fan fiction. They create their own replicas of the props and the costumes. They buy T-shirts. They, you know, it's all the same stuff, really. Um, and they express themselves the same way. You stand in, on a stage at an Outlander gathering, um, and it's a very positive, warm, lovely thing. You know, they're... they're they're there to ask you questions and they're there to laugh at your jokes and they know the show and it's all a great sense of community. And it's very much like that at a Star Trek convention or a Battlestar one. It's all very much the same. You know, the demographic is just different. You know, these are, these are more, uh, skews more predominantly female, um, largely because of the books. Uh, they're a little older. Um, the Star Trek and Battlestar demographic was younger and more male, but they were, a tremendous amount of women in the Trek and Battlestar fandoms as well. And they were, interestingly enough, they were usually the ones they organized. <laughs> they were, the original Star Trek conventions were organized by women. You know, the original um, uh, letter writing campaigns to keep Star Trek on the air were organized by women. They were the ones that really drove fandom, you know, in the early days. And uh, so Outlander, it's, it's just a very familiar kind of setup. I don't think I've been surprised at all, or, or you know, taken aback by anything that I've encountered so far in the Outlander fandom. Is is that why you do your own uh, Outlander podcast to connect with those fans on a more personal level? Yeah, I started doing that at Battlestar, and I just enjoyed it. You know, I uh, 
when they first asked me to do it at Battlestar, I didn't even know what a podcast was. <laughs> it was still a new term. And so I was like, what? What's that? And they said, oh, it's sort of like, it's sort of like radio and think of it like doing a DVD commentary. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll do it like that. And so I just began to think when I started doing it, I started, it started to become uh, like the last step of the production for me. You know, once I did the podcast, I was done with that episode forever. And that was like the last step of producing it. And then that's still the way I feel about it. You know, I produced the show, but my last step is to do the podcast on it, talk about what we did, what we didn't do, mistakes, things you're proud of, interesting jokes, and boom, it's like done. And it's in the drawer and I'm moving on to the next one. I also, you know, I was a fan. I was a Star Trek fan. I, I've been on the other side of that curtain. I've sat in those audiences. I've, I've read books and bought magazines and been obsessed with actors and, you know, what they were really like, what was it like on the set. And, you know, I, I understand the hunger for information and, you know, how, how important it was that it, that was made available to me. So, and I like giving that back and I like talking about the show. And so I enjoy, I enjoy doing the podcast. Ron, I always have the distinct pleasure of asking the last question of every interview that we do, and it's usually the most important question I always ask the interviewee. Are you ready for this? Uh huh. Are you Team Frank or are you Team Jamie? Uh, <laughs> see, I have to be Team. I'm the one that has to be Team both. So, you know, I, I, I can't. I'm the one that can't choose. I have to be Team. All of the team. I have to be Team Rupert and Team Angus, and you know, they're all my team. <laughs> well played, well played. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ron. This was an absolute delight having you on. I've been an avid listener of your podcast, so it is a true joy to have you here on Outlander Cast with Blake and myself. This is really a treat. Well, it was my pleasure to do it, and uh, I'd be happy to do it again sometime. Once again, thank you so much to Ron Moore for joining us on Outlander Cast. It was an absolute honor. Blake, what are your thoughts? Oh my God. Did did you hear me fangirl in front of him? I I heard it. I saw it. <laughs> I I felt the heat come off of you. <laughs> my goodness. I had to like give him some looks like, buddy, stop drooling. Like I thought I fangirled with Iris Stephen Bear, and I did. <laughs> I totally did. It's totally all right. Totally but, applicable. But speaking with Ron Moore was great. I mean, we even told him about my my our enterprise plaque in our studio. <laughs> I know. Blake is one of the hardest people to shop for because he's just one of those guys that like buys whatever he wants. And so I have to ask him, like, what do you, what do you want for your anniversary? I, I want the USS Enterprise plaque. What the hell is that? <laughs> you had to what? look it up on the internet. I had to look it up. I had to Google it. And I was like, oh. And, he, and the picture is Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> standing next to the plaque and I'm like I bet you not only Blake wants that picture but he then wants me to take a picture of him in his Star Trek shirt looking like Jean-Luc holding. Picard holding the plaque on our wall anyway oh, so yes man. this yes. was in addition to the Star Trek just to be able to talk about Outlander we've been able to talk to directors and writers and all these people who are involved in this mm -hmm. process and now to talk to Ron who you know, when he was trying to describe what it was that he does, I didn't say it right then, but I thought about it and I was like, he's the he's the godfather. <laughs> That's what he is. He he's, really is the godfather. He's the I like godfather, that. you know? He's like, I know what's going on. Hey, oh. I, without the accent, of course. <laughs> but, he, you know, he has to be in charge of a little bit of everything. Oh, no, a lot of everything. He is in charge of everything. Well, the thing, yeah. he, he said it himself, he is the voice of the show. Whatever... Whatever decision has to be made, whatever creative decision that has to be made, it get it gets run through him. Whether it's directing or writing or budget or sets or designs, costumes, anything, it run. He is the guy. When you're looking at Outlander, you're looking at Ron Moore. Like I think about how hard it is just to run and manage my house. You know, I'm in charge of. Pretty much everything that goes on in here between the kids and the food. And we the have cats. a hard enough time running this podcast. Seriously, and he's in charge of like a couple hundred people. Oh, more than that, and then and then does a podcast on top of it. You know, <laughs> it's just, why not? Just to shove it in all of our faces. Why not? <laughs> Man, he's just so cool. Oh wow! No, I, so, I'm, I I am really I was really pleased with all the information that he gave. Uh, in particularly in particular, how he thought that episode three was the hottest for him to break. I always thought that 
he was going to say episode 15 or episode 16 no. due to the graphic nature of what happened. But I think what he was saying was episode three was the hardest because it was the first time he had to let go. He wrote episodes one and two yep. and he had to now say, okay, little bird, fly. <laughs> Let's see if you can do it. Let's see if everyone else can just take it out of my hands and if the dream can continue to go on. And it did. And yep. it flourished. So what an awesome, awesome time chatting with him. And we also wanted to thank some very special people who helped make this possible. Correct. We couldn't have done it without these people. And we, we wanted to outsource some of our questions to people who actually know what they're talking about. And those people were actually all the writers on our brand new Outlander cast blog and without them we it wouldn't have been able to happen to, to the extent that you heard it so i i wanted to personally thank all of you you guys rock and holly sarah aaron melissa ashley john barbara carolyn kendra Paige. you you guys are just rock stars man and and i want to give a, a big shout out to you you just nailed it for us and Woo-hoo. we worked we all worked together to to make this happen we told them earlier that it was going to happen and and they they helped us out big time speaking of that please go check out all of these wonderful people's work on the new brand new outlander cast blog you can find it at outlandercastblog.blogspot.com or just go to outlandercast.com and click on the little tab that says blog so Go there, check out all the great articles that are about time travel and the birthing in Outlander, if that is accurate. And then also my own personal open and kind of honest and letter to stars on how they can improve their brand and in the dissemination of Outlander. There's a whole bunch of great things over there. So please make it a point to go to outlandercastblog.blogspot.com or just go to outlandercast.com and click on the blog tab. And don't forget, we are going to be reading some of these blog posts as upcoming podcast episodes. So this way, if you don't have time to sit down and read, you can listen to them. Actually, our next episode is going to be one of those blog posts. So get excited and look forward to that. Once again, episode 32 of Outlander Cast is brought to you by the tag Your It Etsy Shop. From Outlander-inspired necklaces and rings to custom designs for birthdays or any occasion, remember holiday season is coming up. <laughs> Every piece is created by Dawn, one letter at a time, and is one of a kind. So please take the time to visit Dawn at www.tagyourit.biz. That's B-I-Z. Tell her Mary and Blake sent you and use the coupon code OUTLANDERCAST15 for 15% off your purchase. So as I said, holiday season's coming up. You always have those people who you're like, I don't know what the heck to get this person. Like me. Email Dawn. (laughs) Dawn and you can come up with something really amazing. So as always, tag your mama, tag your pet, tag your it, whatever it is. Wow. I I still, I I can't believe we interviewed Ron Moore. Like, we we did that. We just did that. I'm pretty pumped. Me too. Right? He's awesome. Just just let me nerd out for just one more second. (gasps) Okay, go ahead. Now we can be professional. If you want to nerd out with us, we would love to hear your reactions to this episode. Maybe you have future questions that you would like answered if we ever were to get him again. Who (laughs) knows? Who knows? But reach out to us. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and our handles are all the same. It's OutlanderCast. Or if you like email, you can reach us at OutlanderCast at Gmail. You can see all of our previous episodes, listen to them, learn about the blog, see everything you need on our website, outlandercast.com. And on outlandercast.com, there's this little tab that says support us. If you click that, there's a whole bunch of different ways to support Outlandercast to help keep it a free produced podcast for you guys. One of which is iTunes and all the reviews that you guys would be able to do for us. And another good way is a thing called Patreon. And Patreon is a way to donate a dollar or two dollars or $125 billion. We'll take it all. We'd be honored to accept anything you give to help us keep this a free podcast for you guys. We want to thank those of you who have taken the time to rate us and review us on iTunes. We have one by JL. And it says, you guys are great. 
Love your podcast. I listen to you while I'm at work, and it's very hard to keep myself from responding to something <laughs> that's been said as if I were in the studio with you. Thank you for all that you do and keeping it light and fun. Aww. Very enjoyable. So thank you very much. We have another one by D2Fish. D2Fish says, I enjoy listening to Mary and Blake's banter. They bring each bring a different view to the podcast. The podcast is very funny and entertaining. So thank you so much for writing. If you haven't sent us a review yet, head on over to iTunes, rate us and review us. And while you're there, if you like some other reviews, say that you do. Yeah. There's a little like, was this review helpful? <laughs> say yes. No, honestly, guys, Spread thank you. Love. Thank so- you. Thank you so much for, for sending us these reviews. It makes our day. And just, I want to thank you for listening to us every time we put out a brand new episode it, it's it's quite an honor and uh that you carve out time for us so thank you so much well ladies and gents that is the end of this episode i'm mary my name's blake and you've been listening to outlander cast today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.